uh, Ross's text. It's from 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, and I'm going to read the first 15 verses. So 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they're able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means." If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it's written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. And may God bless his word as Ross brings it to us. I've got to uh, set up this little thing in the corner. So whilst I do that, why don't you discuss what England's chances are in the knockouts on Monday? So uh, what's the decision? Chat, any chance? Yeah? Got some hope and faith over here. Anyone else? No, yeah, oh, we have. Oh, fair enough. I genuinely thought people were like, no, not a chance. We were rubbish against Slovenia. Anyway, that's not the point of the message or why I stand here. Um, can I just say, for those that you may be new and it's your first time to church and your first time in this kind of context, um, the reason I'm kind of standing here and I'm going to talk for a little bit about the Bible is because we believe it's God's love letter to us. And as a consequence in it, He sets out a way of life that we believe is, is His best. And his best is better for us and better than the way of the world and the ways we live in this world. So if you are new, hopefully we can have a bit of a conversation and discuss some of the things that we're looking at in the text tonight. Because tonight we're starting our new series entitled Investing in the Kingdom. It's a very mini-series. I'm going to be talking about the concept of giving tonight. And then next week, Clive is talking about the challenge of giving. And the aim of this series is to kind of explore a topic that we're often quite uncomfortable talking about. So money is what we're going to be exploring. Looking a bit about money, but even more specifically at giving to the church. And I'm a little bit awkward standing here talking about that this evening, as Clive was when he first talked about giving recently as well, because we realize as pastors, we're recipients 
of the money you give. So it can sound like, if done badly, that we're saying, give money because I really fancy an Armani suit for a wedding I'm going to soon. Which sadly, in its worst cases, across churches, you may be seen. Other ministers have done. That is by no means the case or the reason as to why we give. Giving is, is part of our worship. And we're going to explore the heart behind giving and what the purpose of it is throughout the Bible. Are we game for this tonight? So that's kind of a disclaimer before we do <laughs> it. Yeah, maybe, if we have to. <laughs> so hopefully we're going to explore a bit of this stuff tonight. That was your disclaimer before we begin. So I'll ask a question at the start. What is the heart behind the concept of giving? What is the heart behind the concept of giving? One word, generosity. I want to read um, a little bit from this, this guy called Shane Claiborne. Has anyone read this book, Irresistible Revolution? This guy's an absolute hero, um, a real action, a man of action. He decided one day that if Jesus really meant what he said in the Bible about living for the poor and doing all the things he did, then, then maybe we should actually do that. And he started taking Jesus at his word and living this radical lifestyle. And he writes in his book a little bit about some of his experiences. And he met some really generous people. I want to read you what he says about some of these generous people that he met. If I can remember the page. He says this, People who experiment in sharing may begin out of a burden of guilt, but they are sustained by the matchless joy it brings. What delight it is to see others receive the gifts of God, especially when they have been deprived of them for so long. One of the beggars in Calcutta approached me one day, and I had no money on me, but I felt a piece of gum in my pocket, so I handed it to her. I have no idea how long it had been since she had chewed gum, or if she'd ever had the chance. She looked at it and smiled with delight. Then she tore it into three pieces and handed one to me and one to my friend so we could share in her excitement. When those who have gone without life's simplest pleasures are given a gift, they're so overjoyed that their instinct is often to share rather than to hoard. Kids I got ice cream for in India would run and grab their friends and make everyone take a bite or a lick. How cool is that? That generosity that, that they have so little, and yet the very little they have, they're willing to give to others. They're willing to share with people they love, or people they don't even know in this case. That generosity blows my mind. Generosity is defined as showing a readiness to give more of something, especially money, than is strictly necessary or expected. Showing a readiness to give more of something, especially money, than is strictly necessary or expected. Words that we associate with, with generosity, to be lavish, to magnanimous, to be magnanimous, sorry, to be unselfish, abundance. I don't know about you, but these are awesome words. These are things I would love to be, to be a generous person. There's something beautiful about generosity. And I was talking the other week in the morning service about humility and the fact that this characteristic, when it's lived out in people, it's almost hard to define generosity in someone, isn't it? It's almost hard to go, oh, well, they brought me around at the pub once. That guy is so generous. It's far more than just, just maybe giving money here and there. It's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's something about a person. And humility is very, very similar. And as I was thinking about these two concepts this week, what is it that about a person who's humble or generous that's so attractive? And the only conclusion I could come to is there's something about the fact that they put the other first. When you're being humble, you put, it, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. When you're generous, 
It's being willing to give to someone else even when you don't have because you actually think, Do you know what? Even though I don't have that much, I want to bless you with the very little I have. The concept of giving begins with a heart of generosity. And generosity is central to the text that we're looking at tonight. So, last night I'm at Clive's house. Andy was there as well. Andy's my friend from Andover as well, by the way. So make him feel, feel welcome when you see him. So I'm at Clive's house, Andover. Oh, don't say that. And, um, and Marilyn says to me, Ross, do you want to come and see my dollhouse room? And I love Marilyn's dollhouse room. I'm not afraid to say it. I stand here and say proudly that I've played with Marilyn's dollhouses on numerous occasions. She has furniture in there, so intricate. It's absolutely ridiculous. So I go upstairs, and we're exploring the kind of the dollhouses. And as I'm doing it, I have this weird revelation. It's like God said to me, why don't you use some of the dollhouse characters to preach tomorrow? Because I think that would be a good way to explain to people the story that you're looking at with many different names. That's the way you're looking at me now is exactly what I thought. I thought, no, this is absolutely ridiculous. But then I had a brainwave. People remember what is ridiculous. So if you go home tonight and you're thinking, I literally can't believe Ross used dollhouse characters to tell the story of the Bible, I guarantee you, you'll remember the reason I did so and you'll remember the point that I made as a consequence of it. So fresh from Marilyn's house, I've been given permission. I have, ooh, I have some dollhouse characters that I'm going to use to explain the story. This could absolutely tank, or this could be a really helpful way of explaining it. I'm willing to use this as an example. Clive said to me, either way I win. If, 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 if I use these and it doesn't work, then people come to him and go, you're absolutely brilliant. If I use them and it works, they go, well done, Clive, you've got Ross to come to Mutley. So either way, he wins in this circumstance. So we're actually doing this. You're all sitting there and anticipating this is actually happening. <laughs> We're going to use this guy as the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is essentially writing a letter to the Corinthians. I'm going to use this guy because the Apostle Paul historically was meant to have been quite small and a balding man. Probably didn't have a tuxedo, probably didn't have a cup and saucer. But anyway, we'll ignore that. And he was probably a little bit more Middle Eastern than this Downton Abbey fellow who I've got in my hand. But we're going to use him to represent Paul. Paul's writing a letter to the Corinthians. Paul was, um, for those that don't know, he was the Apostle Paul. He was one of the, the main pillars and leaders of the church in its kind of early movement. He wrote most of the, the New Testament that we have, many of the letters that we have in the New Testament. Paul's story is that he was a Pharisee, a really religious um, and, and persecutor of the Christians. But then he meets with Jesus in this amazing way in Damascus Road. His life is turned around, and as a consequence, he becomes one of the main leaders of the Christian movement. So Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthians in, uh, live in the ancient city of Corinth, a, a city known for its wealth. Corinth had a, a trade route going straight through the center of it. So ships, rather than having to travel around and traverse the horrific seas around the city, went straight through the middle. And as a consequence, were able to save a lot of time and save their ships. Um, that's a picture there of the, the temple in Apollos. The ancient city is near Athens in Greece. So Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, and he's essentially encouraging them to be generous. They're going to sit there for now, having a little conversation as he writes to them. I've resisted the temptation to actually use them to speak, so be glad of that at the very least. So let's rewind the story, right? We come back to Jesus has just died. He's buried, and then three days later, he's resurrected. After he's resurrected, he gathers, gathers his followers, he gathers his disciples, and he says, all right, I want you to go out to the ends of the earth and tell people about me. 
I want you to be me to others. I want you to do the amazing things I did, say the amazing things I did. I want you to go across the world doing this. Jesus then ascended to be with his fathers, with his father, sorry. And his followers, particularly the most influential ones at the time, decided to split up and minister to different people groups in order to maximize their ministry opportunity. Peter, James, and John. We're going to have, we'll have James sitting in the chair looking very regal. We'll have Peter with the coal. And I ran out of characters, so I've got a policeman to play John. Peter, James, and John went and ministered to the Jews. That was the sole focus of their ministry. We had a split at this point between the Jews and the non-Jews, the Jews and the Gentiles, Gentiles being us, essentially, unless you're Jewish in this room, the non-Jews. And then Paul and Barnabas will take him out of his future context writing the letter, and will take him back to be with his friend Barnabas. They actually fall out later. But at the time, they're friends. Barnabas being played here by a man, a boy of a book. That was, again, I ran out of characters. So we have James, John, and Peter have gone to the non-Jews, the Jews, and Paul and Barnabas have gone to the non-Jews. Galatians 2 verse 9 to 10 says this, recognizing that my calling had been given by God, this is Paul saying this, James, Peter, and John, the pillars of the church, shook hands with me and Barnabas, assigning us to a ministry to the non-Jews, while they continued to be responsible for reaching out to the Jews. The only additional thing they asked was that we remember the poor, and I was already eager to do that. So Barnabas and Paul go off to the non-Jews, and their agreement they made with Peter, James, and John is at one point, at some point during their ministry, they'll make sure they remember the poor. So we flash forward. Paul's in this conversation again with the Corinthians. He's written this letter, and in the text we're looking at tonight, what he's encouraging them to do is to be generous in their giving to the poor. Because originally he got the Corinthians and he asked them to set up this treasury. So each month the Corinthians would put away some money in order to allow all of this money in the treasury to come to Peter, James, and John. Because the Jews they're ministering to are very poor. There was a famine at the time that were unable to support themselves. So Paul's logic is, if I get the Corinthians, who are non-Jews, to get a bunch of money, send it to the Jews in Jerusalem and provide there for the poor. One, I help with the relationships between the two. And also, I, I, I fulfill the word that I gave at the start that I would give to the poor. Are you all with me still? Is this helping even remotely? Just nod. Just nod. Just make me feel good. Brilliant. I'm really glad it's working. So essentially, Paul is, is saying to the Corinthians, look, you were brilliant at the start. You were giving plenty of money into this treasury for the poor, but, but I realize that somewhere along the line, you've started to slack off in what you're giving. You've, you've lacked in generosity. So in this message, he's saying, I want you to be generous again. Let me give you two examples of generosity. He says, look at the Macedonians. He says, look at God. They are two examples of generosity. So the first example, then, of generosity he points to is the Macedonians. The Macedonians be a people group made up of the Philippians and the Thessalonians. Again, if you know your New Testament, Paul writes letters to them later on. So the Macedonians are a great example in Paul's mind of generosity. He says this in verses 1 to 3. Now, brothers and sisters, let me tell you about the amazing gift of God's grace that's happening throughout the churches in Macedonia. Even in the face of severe anguish and hard times, their relation and poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity. I watched as they willingly gave what they could afford and then went beyond to give even more. 
there's something challenging about, about someone who has little, like we read earlier with the, with the story of Shane Claiborne, and is willing to give that little that they have to others. And I think that's what's so inspiring about what Paul is saying about his first example of generosity in the Macedonians. They had very little. They were poor, and yet the little they had, they were willing to give to the poor Jews, to give to those who needed it. And Paul says, be generous like the Macedonians, but also be generous like God. Because the question I ask around this is, is what is the motive for the Macedonians to be generous? Why are they so willing to give? What do they gain from it? They have nothing in the first place, so why be generous to others? Why give to the poor? And the reason is because somewhere along the line, as we read in verses 8 to 11, God has so worked in their lives that they want to give something back to him. Verses 8 to 11 say, I'm not going to command you, but I'm going to offer you the chance to prove your love genuine in the same way that others have done. You know the grace that has come to us through our Lord Jesus, the anointed. He set aside his infinite riches and was born into the lowliest circumstances so that you may gain great riches through his humble poverty. Listen, it's been a year since we have called you to attention to this opportunity to demonstrate God's grace. So here's my advice. Pull together your resources and finish what you started. His second example is God. Why? Because we worship a God who is so generous that he gives absolutely everything to us. He gave absolutely everything to us. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He suffered the pain on the cross, the pain of death, and the Father suffered the loss of his Son. And he did all of that. Why? For us. He didn't just give financially. He didn't just give of his time. He literally gave his life for us. We worship a generous God, and as a consequence, we're called to be a generous people. And I don't know about you, but the reason I have any generosity in me, the reason I'd even want to give to someone else to a certain extent is because of what God has done in my life. Can you relate to that? And there's something about the, the Macedonians that, that Paul is drawing to because he's saying their relationship with Jesus was so sincere, was so genuine, they'd experienced so much of his generosity and his love that it flowed out of their lives, even in their great poverty, they were willing to give to others. I want to tell you my testimony. And I very rarely tell my testimony in church because I've kind of got that philosophy, well, I didn't do drugs or kill anyone, so it's not going to be a story that anyone's interested in. You know what I mean? Because I was brought up in a Christian home, and, and that, was, that was part of my story. But yet, actually, do you know what? My testimony relates to this to a certain extent. I was always wanted to be um, in, in the sports industry. Originally, I was trained to be a personal trainer. I was working as a lifeguard for a while. I was going to start working in the gym. And then um, I wanted to be a PE teacher, national, national you can see the transition. And I signed up to go to Plymouth University when the Exmouth, remember the Exmouth campus? Where they did like education stuff there. And I signed up and I got a place there. And my dad said to me, Ross, whatever you do, you must go to Mutley Baptist Church. That is like the student university to go for. So sorry to those that are from Hope. That was just what my dad told me. So he was encouraging me to come to, come to Mutley at the time. And that was all before any of this stuff happened here. And I remember during that year, God really transformed my life. I can't really 
describe it to a certain extent. I was prayed for one day in a service when I'd really been so frustrated about what was going on. And everything changed. I just woke up every morning, and the first thing I wanted to do was to pray. And just being a couple of minutes in his presence wasn't good enough. I wanted to be with him for as long as I could. I wanted to put off other things because I wanted to be with God. I wanted to read the Bible because suddenly this book that was like dead and living and full of boring characters and weirdos was suddenly living and it made sense to me and it was real and I got excited about it. And over that year, towards the end of it, I went to Spring Harvest. So actually, Andy, I didn't plan this originally, but it's going to be a really good plug for Spring Harvest. And I went to Spring Harvest and I went for my God fix. You know the kind of standard way of doing it? You've had a really rough year, and you go, do you know what? It's all right. I'll go to Spring Harvest. I'll meet with God. It'll be quality. I'll have some good worship. I'll come home, and then over a couple of weeks' time, that high will lower, and you'll go back into the normality of life, right? Can you relate to that? The kind of conferences we go to. So I was really excited about this, thinking it's great. I'm going to meet with God in a powerful way. And I was in a worship service, and I was almost frustrated. God, why am I not experiencing you? And I got this sense of him just saying, but Ross, you've been experiencing me all year. You're not coming to this time of worship dry. You're not coming to spring harvest wanting me in the same way because I'm already there. You know I'm there. We're in this relationship now. This is an every single day thing. And it was like in that moment I heard him say, I want everything. I want all of you. And I just knew I couldn't. I had to give him everything. I faffed around. I enjoyed apathy in every single sense and enjoyed comfort. I faffed around. I'd been chasing my own things, and I just knew I had to give them everything. So I phoned my parents up, the phone call no parents want, and I say, Mom, Dad, look, I know you drove me all the way down to Plymouth, which is the other side of the country, but, but look, I, I don't want to go to university anymore. Mom and Dad are like, Ross, really? Like, don't be doing this now. What's happened? And I said, I want to do theology. I feel called to study theology. I don't know if I'm going to go to be a minister or missionary, whatever it is, but I feel called to study theology. The reason I say this is, is a couple of months later, I've got a place at London School of Theology, the best theological college in the world, and, and I'm getting ready to go. I'm preparing mentally and, and at home as well, and I'm leaving the leisure center on my last days at work, and the physiotherapist comes up to me. We've been getting on really well over a period of time, and she says to me, Ross, you can't be earning much being a lifeguard. And I was like, no, not at all. She's like, how would you like a job? Like, I can give you a significant, significantly more money. Um, I would love you to be the manager of my new gym that I'm starting up. I would pay you to be a personal trainer. And I was standing there going, oh, that's like my dream job on a plate. It's financial security. She would train me up. It was everything I could possibly ask for. And I was like, no, I, I, don't, I don't want that. And, and, and can I just say, I'm not saying that because somehow that was wrong or because regular working's wrong and, and somehow ministry is a higher calling. I'm not saying that by any means, shape or form. I'm just saying I so wanted to give God everything that even when it was offered on a plate, the financial security I wanted, I didn't want it because Jesus was worth more. I tell you this not because somehow I want to hold myself up as an example of generosity by any means, shape, or form. I didn't go away giving money out to everyone and throwing my possessions at everyone. That's not what I started doing, but it put money in perspective for me. Because suddenly, actually, Jesus was the most important thing. And I was wanting to give him everything, so I didn't really care about it to a certain extent. And you might think that's just radical youth. Maybe it was to a certain extent. But do we not sometimes get conditioned to then start believing that we have to have a certain amount, that we have to have certain things in place, we somehow lose that radical nature of the faith that says give, give, and give. 
Because charity isn't something that we do just to make ourselves feel good, right? It's something that we do because God's generosity flows into our heart and overflows from us into the lives of others. So we worship a generous God. We are called to be a generous people. And one of the ways we're generous is in investing in the kingdom of God, in giving to God. And the way in which we do that best is through giving to the local church. And the problem, the problem when I say this is it can sound like what I'm now going to do is a sales pitch. But I do want to encourage us to give to the church. Because one, I think it's an important biblical concept. And two, that's the way that we invest in our community of Plymouth. It's one of the ways we invest in, in all those missionaries that are across the seas. It's one way we invest in you when you need resources to do various things throughout the city. So the general um, biblical concept is called tithing. I can imagine most of you are aware of what I mean when I talk about tithing, but if you're not, let me explain. So there's this biblical concept, a kind of story that's told throughout the Bible of giving 10% of your wages to God. Originally, it was kind of 10% of your first fruits of, your, of the best of your animals and, and your, your vegetation, and then later it kind of became finance. You give to the temple or you give to the church, and the reason is that that money's taken and invested into local community. The best example I've ever seen of tithing is from two little boys, I've got, I know a family who really well called Paula and Stephen that I went to visit recently. They've got two little boys, Josh and Wilbur. Wilbur, bright ginger hair. Dad, mum, none. The dedication was a bit awkward because everyone thought I was, <laughs> I was the dad rather than Stephen himself. So these boys are awesome. I love them to bits. And, um, and Paul, Stephen and Paula want to encourage generosity amongst their children. So they've got them three different cups. And whenever they get their pocket money, the rule is they have to put a little bit of money in each cup. They've got the save cup, they've already got the, give, um, the spend cup, the save cup, and the gift cup. The basic rule is they can put money in the spend cup, give, uh, save cup, and the gift cup in that order, but they can't put it in the gift cup and then decide later on they want to buy an extortionately expensive 25p Freddo and take the money out of the gift cup and then put it in the spend cup. That's not the way it works. It can go one way or the other, but not the other way to encourage them to give. I love that. Do you have think that's quality? No? Okay. It's worth a go. And you may be sitting there thinking, do you know what, I'm quite skeptical about giving to the church, Ross. Maybe you've seen anything thing on the news, maybe you've heard all the stories about, about ministers t- t- getting, having Bentleys and Armani suits and stuff, and you think, I don't want to give to the church, that's the last place I want to give. They were talking about giving to the poor. What are you on about, Ross, giving to the church? So I wanted to talk a little bit about what Muttley do. Why is it important to give to us? What, is the per- what do we do with the money that we get? Yes, it goes on this incredible building. Yes, it goes on, on paying staff salaries and, and many other things within the church. But did you know we give about £80,000 a year to mission? I was staggered to find that out the other day when I looked at it. Your tithes, your giving, provides up to £80,000 worth of money towards mission. I went on the website and I wanted to find out what that meant. What, is it, what does it mean to give to mission? What kind of mission organizations are we supporting generally? And it says this on the website. Locally in Plymouth, we support organizations providing much-needed social support for local families and vulnerable adults, outreach to schools and universities, Bibles and other literature distribution, and support for the hospital chaplaincy. 
Across the UK, we have links with beach missions and youth with a mission. Our international connections are diverse and include over a dozen individuals and families working in Bible translation in Papua New Guinea, teaching English in China, several developments and youth programs in Africa, Eastern Europe and Bali, Christian literature outreach in Bahrain, and a partnership with a community church in the remote part of Nepal. That is flipping awesome. That is where your giving goes. That is where the money is going to all these different initiatives to help the poor, to help those who are struggling, to help the, the ministries across the globe and in our local city of Plymouth. We also have the families ministry here in which we reach across the cities. Parents who are struggling are able to come and, and find a home here in the church, find support and security here. Vulnerable adults, there's an incredible homeless ministry that comes out of this church. People with addiction, there's incredible works that go on in this church for those who are struggling with addiction. And vulnerable adults of all kinds. The youth program here is also resourced by this finance. What am I trying to say? The money goes to the work that God is doing in the city and across the world. And I think that is awesome. And that is a reason to give. That is a reason to give your finance. I want to finish with these words from Shane Claiborne. He says this, generosity is a virtue not just for those with a special spiritual gifting or an admirable um, philanthropic, how do you pronounce that again? (laughs) Philanthropics, thank you. I had it in my head earlier and I thought I'm going to mess that up on the day and I have. It is is the very heart of our rebirth. Popular culture has taught us to believe that charity is a virtue, but for Christians it is only what is expected. True generosity is measured not by how much we give away, but how much we have left especially when we look at the needs of our neighbors. We have no right not to be charitable. Are we generous? Let's pray. Father, I'm so aware that this characteristic is, is far more than, than just giving to the church and that generosity is, is a lifestyle. And, and pray that, that we will be generous not just in, in, in giving, but in everything we do, in those we meet, in our everyday lives, that they will see our generosity. And I pray most importantly, Jesus, that they will see that generosity comes not from us, but from you. And from how generous you've been to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.